Let me ask you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. This entire service, we have been, as it were, approaching the table, and you were encouraged uh, last week uh, through an announcement to prepare yourself even for this uh, throughout the week. I want you, as I uh, read this passage today, to ask yourself this question in terms of this table before us. There are going to be two men described in this teaching of Jesus. Which one would be invited to the table? In Luke 18, beginning with the ninth verse, we read this. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. Lord, as we bow before you today, help us to bow not only our heads, but our hearts. pride, our accomplishments, whatever it is we think we have impressed you with, whatever it is we think we have brought to you today, help us to bow before you. Will you teach us from your word? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we continue today with our series on the making of a disciple, we want to look at 
the issue of repentance, and we, we've simply got to understand how essential that is in the life of a disciple. I'm afraid far too often those who are believers have been taught or they think that repentance is something you do on the front end of your Christian walk. I'll repent, turn from my sin, and give my life to Christ, and then that's it. As opposed to something that is ongoing and is an essential part of our growth in Christ. Not that we add anything to our salvation. We've got to be careful that repentance not become a, a work, something that we think, well, if I repent, then God will love me more. Then it becomes penance. And there is no place in the Scripture for that. But we do see the importance of it. It is preached throughout the Old Testament. Then in the New Testament, John the Baptist, that was his message. It was the message of Jesus. It was preached by Jesus' disciples. It was preached by the Apostle Paul. Now, why is it needed after that initial step, after you come to Christ, why do we need to repent and in what sense? What's the purpose of it? If it, if it doesn't add anything to our salvation, if it doesn't make God love us more, then why is it so needed? Well, again, as we've done often in this series, let's start at the beginning. We've got to uh, establish the foundations of the need for repentance, first of all, because of universal sinfulness. In Romans 3:23, "For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God." Romans 3:10 and 11. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. We've always got to go back to that and understand that that sin, as long as we are in this world, will be something that is struggled with. The fact that you come to Christ doesn't mean that the struggle is over. As long as we live in a fallen world, and that's as long as you are alive, then we, we need to understand the profound effect that sin has. Now, we're no longer slaves to it. When we come to Christ, from that point on, you don't have to sin, but sin is something that we will have to grapple with. And that's just the reality. That is the experience. And we will grapple with it until... Ultimately, we are glorified, 
when we die or when Jesus comes again, then we don't have to deal with sin any longer. Up until then, we will. Universal sinfulness. And because of that, complete condemnation because of sin. Romans 6, 23, the first part. For the wages of sin is death. You say, well, that's so basic. Well, you, you can't take it for granted. We mustn't. We've got to understand we're not just sick. We're not just hurt. We are dead without Christ. And then, thirdly, salvation in Christ. The second part of that same verse, Romans 6, 23. First part was the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's where salvation comes in. Now we've had whole messages on this in this series. I wanted to stipulate those again because to understand repentance, I can't assume you were here for those messages. To understand repentance, you've got to understand sin. You've got to understand how lost we are. So we stipulate those, but we can't take them for granted. Now, in terms of our growth in being a disciple, there's a a profound example of what it should look like in terms of our understanding of our own sinfulness, and that's in the Apostle Paul. We might want to call that Paul's progression. Sanctification is what it, the, just a theological term for, term for us growing daily to be more and more like Christ. And that's what being a disciple is, to become more and more like Christ. The problem with sanctification and us looking at our own lives is that that sometimes you can look at your life and you can say, wow, I'm not sure I grew a whole lot from yesterday. In fact, I think from yesterday, I might have gone backwards. You know, you think of something you, you did or some sin you fell into or some sinful attitude that you have. And it can become discouraging if you, if you look at, at little segments like that and you, you, you um, get too focused on today and yesterday and the day before. So sometimes you've got to step back if you've been a Christian for a while and you look at bigger chunks of time. Where was I a year ago? Where was I five years ago? And if you've been a Christian longer than that, where was I 10 years ago? And generally, you ought to, you ought to be able to see that although there are setbacks, there are times you, you feel like you're going backward, but, but generally, you should see growth. You, just, you should say, well, you know what? There are things that I struggled with back then that I don't really struggle with anymore. I got new struggles, but I don't really struggle with those. So if you step back, now if we do that with the Apostle Paul, I want you to follow this just for a second and see his progression. And I want to show it to you in four-year increments. In 
uh, 58 A.D. He said this. It's recorded in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9. He called himself the least of all the apostles. Okay? That's his view of himself at that point. I am, he said, the least of all the apostles. Sounds humble. It was. He is understanding his place and so on. Go forward. Four years. 62 A.D. He wrote in Ephesians 3, verse 8, that he was the least of all God's people. Okay? The first one is the least of all apostles. And then he says, I am the least of all God's people. That's worse, isn't it? (laughs) In a sense. He's, He's using a bigger sampling at that point. Now, you fast forward another four years. At the end of his life, 66 A.D., he writes in 1 Timothy 1, verse 15, I am the worst of sinners. So he goes from the least of all apostles to the least of all God's people to the worst of sinners. Now, you might say, well, seems like he's going backwards. He's getting worse overall. I think this is a, a, a beautiful example of the nature of a true disciple. He never gains more confidence in his own goodness. In fact, just the opposite. The more he gets to know Jesus, the closer he grows to Jesus, the closer he comes to Christ, the more he sees his own sinfulness. If you read Christian biographies, you will often see that. These people that we think of as as real strong believers, real saints in the Lord. And often you will see them toward the end of their life just struggling with how sinful they are. When I first started seeing that pattern, I thought, I don't get it. I mean, are they getting worse? And then it dawned on me, no, they're just, they're getting closer to Jesus. And the closer you get to him, the more you see where we're not like him. In fact, the farther away from him you are, the less you see your own sinfulness. So that's the the nature of the need for repentance. Listen to John Owen. Uh, He was talking about how even our righteous acts are like filthy rags. He says, believers know all their duties are weak, imperfect, and unable to abide in God's presence. Therefore, they look to Christ as the one who bears the iniquity of their holy things. You catch that? Instead of saying, 
He bears the iniquity of their sinfulness. He bears the iniquity even of those things that we think are holy. He's the one who adds incense to their prayers, who gathers out of all the weeds from their duties and makes them acceptable to God. You see, there's a danger in us thinking we've got a lot to offer to God and that I've, I've grown enough to, to where I can, I can come and I can stand before God. We don't have anything to offer. We have empty hands. And the closer you get to Christ, the more empty you'll realize your hands are. And it will drive you all the more to the cross. Another Puritan preacher said it this way, even our tears of repentance need to be washed in the blood of the Lamb. Even our tears of repentance need to be washed in his blood. So what is true sorrow? 2 Corinthians chapter 7. If you have your Bibles, turn to that. 2 Corinthians 7. Look at verse 10 and 11. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. And you can go back and read the context. It talks about real grief leading to repentance. Verse 10, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Now, isn't grief or sorrow the same as repentance? Our Westminster Shorter Catechism talks about repentance unto life this way. It says, repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin, that's where it starts, why we started with that, a true sense of his sin, an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ does with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God. So you're facing your sin, you turn from it, but you don't just turn from your sin, you got to fill that void. You turn unto God with a full purpose and endeavor after a new obedience. So you're saying, I'm turning from it and I'm not going to do it again. Will you do it again? you might, but you can't turn from it saying, I'll be back. It's not real repentance if that's the case. Verse 11 in this 2 Corinthians 7, for see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proven yourselves innocent in the matter. Repentance, real repentance, a real turning from our sin 
toward God produces something in us. It produces growth in us. Now back to our parable that I read earlier. It's in Luke 18. I'm not going to read it to you again. You remember the story, though. The two men, Pharisee, tax collector. Pharisee's the religious man, the one that others would have respected, would have seen that certainly they have all of these good works and that Pharisee was quick to name them, what he did for God. The tax collector, everyone would have seen him as a sinner. He saw himself that way, too. I think the Pharisee really illustrates the worldly sorrow. Verse 11, it says, The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus. And and that standing by himself, I, I picture that as he's standing up by himself so that he's noticed. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. See what he's doing? He's praying about himself. But all he could see was others. He wasn't really seeing himself, a true picture of himself. He wasn't thinking in terms of of the the effect of the fall on him. He was seeing the effect of the fall on this tax collector. And he was thankful because he wasn't like him in his eyes. He was only concerned with the outward. Their sin, his righteousness. If he'd really considered the Ten Commandments and really looked at them, he would have known he's not even keeping those. His fatal mistake, though, was he compared himself only to others and not to God. You see, he wasn't comparing himself to Christ, to the perfect holiness that God expects. Now, you may not think that you really relate to him. But, you know, we can always find somebody, somebody with less faith than us, somebody that is a worse sinner. I mean, really, who, who are you looking at? I'll be like the little boy in Sunday school where the teacher gave this lesson And so she said, well, why don't we pray about this? And the little boy prayed, God, thank you that we aren't like the Pharisee. You see, see, that's the problem. Maybe you're just looking down on the Pharisee. And that's the same as him looking down on the tax collector. And that's the issue careful of worldly sorrow. There's many kinds. Suppose I'm guilty of a heinous sin. Suppose I'm guilty of murder. 
Well, I can have a sorrow for getting caught. I can have a sorrow for the consequences for other. Sorrow for myself. Sorrow for fear of punishment. McLaren said this, law and the fear of hell may startle into sorrow and even lead to some kind of repentance. But it is the great power of Christ's love and sacrifice which will really melt the heart into true repentance. See, it's not just about getting caught or being embarrassed. McLaren's saying it's, it's when we look at the cross and we see what he has done for us that ought to melt our heart into real repentance. Look at the true repentance with the tax collector. Verse 13, the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He wouldn't even look God in the face, so to speak. There's a sense of God's holiness. Too many times I'm afraid our posture is almost grabbing God by the collar and saying, you know, I've asked forgiveness. Now give it. We can never do that. He doesn't know that to us. Not one bit. This man beat his breast. That means he was mourning. He was grieving as a sinner. Literally, in the original, it's not have mercy on me, a sinner. It's the sinner. That's how he saw himself. I get the feeling that he struggled to say anything. Godly sorrow produces growth. So who would be invited to the Lord's table? Who would be? Well, Jesus' answer, I, I think, would be right here. I tell you, this man, meaning the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So, who would be invited to this table? Would it be the, the one that had so much in his own mind to present to God? Or any of you who think you're bringing something great to God? Or the one who finds himself saying, I can't see anyone else's sin because all I can see is my own. And I don't really deserve to come to the table. But you, Lord Jesus, have invited me. You have 
asked me to come because of what you have done? Here's a diagnostic question. Has my sorrow over my sin led me to cast myself on Christ? If it hasn't, then in all likelihood, it's not genuine repentance. And yet, if you find yourself saying, oh, I I know the Lord Jesus, absolutely, he's my Lord and Savior, but I've struggled with sin, and I need him so badly, then you are the one invited to the table. Let's hear the words of institution as they are given to us by the Apostle Paul. This is in 1 Corinthians 11. He says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Wonderful invitation. Wonderful warning. Gracious warning that if you really have never come to Christ, you're not trusting in Him alone, if you're still trusting in your own works, then this table's not for you. We invite you to stay and to watch and to see the profound truths that are right here in front of you. A representation of the body and the blood, the blood that was shed on the cross. But it would be better for you to let the element pass by you because you don't want to make fun of what he did. And that's what it's saying. And yet, if you are in Christ and you struggle with sin, but you want his strength in your struggle, this is the place for you. And so, you are invited. If you have professed your faith in Christ and done it in a public manner, not just in this church, but uh, in a church that believes and teaches the Bible, that doesn't teach that this is a work that will get you to heaven, then you're invited to partake. Because it's at this table that we are strengthened even if you have doubts, 
but you're trusting in Christ. Calvin said, this is the place for you. Be honest with him, talk with him, even as the elements will come in a few moments. Let's pray together.